Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by ExpressVPN. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Stephen, it is the week of commercial crew. It is the month. Finally. Uh, or it was the month. It still is the month. It's all many months of commercial crew. The year of commercial Woo! crew. It happened. It happened. People from the U.S. were shot into space from the U.S. for the first time since 2011, when we did not have a podcast here. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Don't worry. We're not going to leave that hanging. Uh, but we do have some other stuff we need to, to talk about first. Our pre-flight checklist items. Yes, there are other things. We're going to make you wait for us to talk about commercial crew. Um, with uh, with the prefect, pre-flight checklist items, uh, Stephen, we should start. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about how people were very confused that they were launching people to space on a SpaceX rocket when they had re- they had just heard that a SpaceX rocket had exploded. Because mm-hmm. that, that seemed like, I saw several people on Twitter say, oh, that's a bad sign. It's like, no, it's, <laughs> it's really not related. But there was a rapid, unexpected disassembly of a starship. There was. So down in Texas, SpaceX has been building test component after test component for Starship. It's it's sort of next gen, really heavy launcher and it's got like a rocket and different modules you can refuel or send people to the moon, lots of things. So they've been doing these uh these test builds. These are going to use the Raptor engine they've been developing for years now. So uh the article dubbed SN4, it's the fourth one of these mm. sort of mock-up components. It doesn't really look like a rocket, right? It looks like someone chopped off the top half of a rocket. Yeah, it's like a tank uh, kind of yeah. yeah. Like yeah. no, I mean like it's a, a gas, gas can. Like a gas tank, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh SN4 underwent a static fire on Friday. So the timing is the commercial crew launch was supposed to be Thursday. It got scrubbed for weather. Friday in Texas, so not in Florida. Texas, they do this static fire test that ends poorly, which we're going to talk about. And then Saturday, commercial crew got off the ground. So that's why this is like all sort of wrapped up in people's minds, I think, because it was all within a few days of each other. But the static fire went well. So that's where they fire it, you know, attached to the ground. The Raptor engine did what it was supposed to do. And I knew it was going on. I kind of had, you know, my space list on Twitter kind of just in the background. And then all of a sudden after the... Static fire, yeah. a couple of minutes after the static fire, it basically erupted into uh, a massive fireball. Yeah, if you watch the video of it, which is pretty amazing, um, they finished the static fire, and the video I, w- I was watching, the commentators are like, uh, you know, that they blah, 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 blah. And then like, oh, look at that. And this mm-hmm. it's like um, vapor, like a white, white vapor is being emitted from various portions of the spacecraft and they're like oh that's unusual i don't think that oh and then the fireball happens so yeah so the static fire went fine but then they tested uh they they tested some other components and it didn't go well that's right so part of this was a quick disconnect system so if you think about a rocket standing on its launch pad there's a bunch of umbilicals connecting it to ground support so you have to load in propellant you have power. In fact, when they launched the Falcon 9, one of the things in the process is uh, going to internal power before then power is being fed to the to the rocket from ground. 
Uh, you have communications, lots of things in these umbilicals. And one of the tests was a quick disconnect system for that. So if, if you think about like plugging something into your wall, you kind of have open ports there, but you can't do that on a rocket. You need those covered, right? Because then you're going to boil away your fuel or you've got exposed uh, connectors. So the way this is supposed to work is disconnect very quickly and these valves basically shut as the quick disconnect comes off. And what seems to have happened is the valves didn't close. So the quick disconnect didn't do what it was supposed to do. And so they had uh, a propellant leak and then and then that ruptured into the the massive fireball. Uh, the the lower oxygen tank was basically just blown to smithereens yeah. and then the upper tank of liquid methane uh, then exploded sort of as a secondary explosion. Not really a failure of the Raptor, not really even a failure of SN4, but a failure in this quick disconnect system that they thought was going to be a just like a quick thing to throw into this test. And so they lose SN4, uh, which is tough because they had just gotten FAA clearance to actually do a short flight with SN4, like in the next few days. Mm-hmm. But... Um, SN4 is gone, so they're not going to do that. No suborbital flight for this one because it is now a bunch of metal on its side uh-huh. in the Texas desert. You can recycle the bits if you can pick them all up and put them in a bin somewhere. But I think they have a giant like rocket Roomba. Yeah. But anyway, this is the story of uh, SpaceX iterating and like it, they blow stuff up. That's just what happens. And it's part of their learning experience. And in this case, I think what you said about the fact that they decided to throw this in says everything about their approach, which is if there are more Mm -hmm. things for us to test, let's test more things. So they successfully tested all of these things. And if that's all they had tried, they would have been fine, but they're like, well, we might as well test the disconnect stuff too. And I you know, and then you learn from the fact that it failed and everything exploded. And that's just kind of part of the part of the deal. And you do it enough times and they've been doing it long enough. And the story we will get to later on involving Falcon 9 and involving Crew Dragon, like the Falcon 9 has gone through, you know, so many different tests and so many different launches. And like that's part of the system is that you, you kind of want to discover all of the the flaws in the system in testing you don't want to like just have a perfect test and then have undiscovered flaws those flaws need to come out and so if uh, stuff blows up in uh, it's not necessarily great if you live in boca what boca vista boca chica del boca vista is from seinfeld boca chica in texas if you're on the coast in texas one of those poor people who was living there and then all of a sudden spacex moved in like you know you've got like explosions happening all the time by your house and that's not the best thing but it is uh, the right way for them to do it and this is how rocket science science has always worked right just now it's streamed live on the internet yeah yeah which is cool i love it it is cool (laughs) uh you know and then sometimes things explode which also happens Mm -hmm. and we we had a comment this was sn4 that does indicate there were three previous ones that all also had failures. Yeah. So this one made it further than those in the testing, but ultimately met its end. Yeah, it happens. It's okay. Yeah. SN5 should be up pretty soon. That was already underway right. kind of next door. So I think they'll be up and running again pretty soon. I, I need to talk about a story that's in the pre-flight checklist that actually just slid into the checklist right as we completed our episode uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, I published it and then this happened. Yeah, just immediately <laughs> after. Uh, so there was a report that came out in May that uh, NASA, SpaceX, and Tom Cruise, 
are talking Wait, about what? shooting a movie <laughs> at the International Space Station. So the first reports come out of Hollywood from Deadline.com. And they're like, all right, well, you know, that's a story from Hollywood, whatever. There's somebody, somebody somewhere said, wouldn't it be cool? And then Jim Bridenstein from NASA, the NASA administrator said, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? And I think Elon Musk was like, yeah, mm-hmm, that sounds, it sounds pretty cool. So it's not going to be a Mission Impossible movie, apparently. And whether it happens, again, movies uh, this early on in the process, a lot, a lot of times don't happen. Uh, so it's kind of wildly speculative, but they're all talking. And the impression I get is that there's a movie that they want to do that involves somebody who either is or was on the International Space Station. And they had that moment where they said, you know, people will really talk about this. What if we actually could get the scenes where Tom Cruise's character is on the ISS at the beginning of the movie, let's say? What if we could actually shoot that on the International Space Station? Something like that, right? Because you can't shoot a whole movie on the International Space Station with a single actor. It doesn't really make sense. But you could do some scenes up there. And uh, I think it's uh, I think it's kind of interesting. And you, you do have a commercial vehicle that can take people there. And, uh, you know, NASA has talked about having tourists and other ways of making money uh, to generate revenue for the ISS. So, uh, you know, I wonder what the creative process is here and if there is one at all that's organic or if it really is truly, hey, what if we could shoot some stuff at the ISS? And then they're kind of backing it out from there. But um, it is hard to fake zero G as we saw when we watched Apollo 13. Like that, that's a movie that's got a lot of real zero G in it from them taking rides in the Vomit Comet uh, airplane with sets built in the airplane. I did wonder about that. I mean, the only thing that you could really set it as at the ISS is the ISS, right? You can't like bring a set and set it up. You really just have to use the ISS as your set. So I don't know. It's fascinating. I I think it's inevitable, right? That as long as uh, people are going into space, we're going to start getting our first movie shot in space, like fictional movie shot in space, our first movie star in space, our first, uh, you know, journalistic report from space, all of that stuff is inevitable, right? If I'm a, I don't know what is the right organization, TV network, newspaper, I don't know who's got the money, but like, once commercial crew is up and running, if I have the ability to just buy a seat on a flight to the ISS, I can, you know, make a, uh, you know, a, a splash by sending one of my reporters up there too to do video and write stories and all of that from the ISS. So the, the, I feel like it's inevitable that we're gonna we're gonna see more of this, whether or not Tom Cruise has just found a way to get himself a ride to space. Maybe the first space podcast from space. Yeah, it could happen. It could. I. I mm. We're going to need more listeners in order to generate more revenue in order to pay for the seats. But uh, it could happen. Uh, Relay.fm slash membership. And, and we don't know for sure that astronauts on the ISS haven't already recorded podcasts. So, Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? And these commercial launch providers, it opens doors that, that NASA was never going to be right. really willing to do. Well, there's been talk. There's, there's that um, the Axiom thing where they talked about mm-hmm. doing a... Uh, uh, this company called Axiom wants to buy seats on SpaceX missions, uh, go to the ISS, but they also want to install a commercial hab attached to the ISS. So there would be a space in the ISS that would basically be like the room, the home for tourists at the ISS and that those space tourists would pay. And, you know, right now the ISS is limited by the number of people working on the ISS. But if they attach this commercial module, that actually gives them a place 
to be and to go. And that's something that's in the in the at least discussion phase now. So there's a, there's a bunch of stuff that's kind of percolating like this. All sorts of things are going to be possible. I think who whoever does shoot, you know, the first part of a movie in low earth orbit or in the space station, like that's just going to be super cool. Even if it's a bad movie, let's just be honest, we'll go see it. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> what they're counting on. I call this section don't judge a satellite based on its size. Oh, I love it. Uh, back in November 2017, a cube sat named <clears throat> the, you ready? Yes. Arc Second Space Telescope Enabling Research in Astrophysics, or Astria. It's pretty good. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good one. I like that one. Uh, it was released from the International Space Station. It is, uh, it's historic for a bunch of reasons. So it was the first CubeSat built by JPL to be successfully operated in orbit. Mm-hmm. So go JPL. Its mission ended earlier this year. It was supposed to have a really short mission and then got three extensions and uh, it just retired. Well, they lost con- uh, communication with it in December of 2019 and then in February 2020, you know, sort of said, okay, it's not, it's not going to come back online. So they, they deemed it the end of mission. And this little this little CubeSat really saw great success. So it was used as a test bed for making CubeSats more uh, intelligent through AI, so they could perhaps look be trained to look for certain things in the sky. They could be trained to look for or- orbital debris and avoid it. Uh, all sorts of interesting AI things could be capable uh, through uh, in CubeSats. Hmm. It imaged the Earth, some comets, Uranus, uh, other spacecraft in geosynchronous orbit, which I like. It's like, you know, taking a picture of its satellite buddies. And the last one that we're going to talk about today is stars that may host transiting exoplanets. We've spoken about exoplanets a lot. There's a lot of ways to detect them. One of the simplest is the transit method. So you look at a point of light being a star in the sky, and you look for dips in that light. And if you record those enough over time... You can start to build enough information to say, okay, there's a planet orbiting that sun. So when that planet comes between us and that star, the light dips a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, normally when we talk about this, we're talking about big telescopes. Exactly. Uh, We're talking about tests. We're talking about Hubble. But a CubeSat you could put on your desk. And it is the first CubeSat to uh, find data suggesting the presence of an exoplanet. So it was used um, to detect 55, uh, I'm going to go with Cancri, Cancri? Cancri, yeah. Cancri, that's what I'm going to call this exoplanet. This had first been detected by a Canadian space agency satellite named uh, MOST, the Micro Variability and Oscillations of Stars. So they already had this data set. And they used the exoplanet to sort of back up that data set. Because the, the data captured by the CubeSat isn't enough on its own because it's brand new, right? They, they're they're basically using this to fact-check information they found through more traditional uh, telescope hardware, if you will. That Canadian Space Agency telescope, by the way, six times the volume of the JPL one and collect collected six times the amount of light through hmm. its sensors. So something way smaller doing the job of something bigger. And it is really made possible because of the camera they used on this CubeSat. So normally you would see like CCD cameras, which require really low temperatures to operate. They could take in a lot of light, but they're bulky and big and 
This CubeSat was armed with a CMOS-based visible light camera, so much closer like what we just think of as how cameras work, you know, like in our phones or something, closer to that than, than CCD. And it can run, run critically at warmer temperatures, so you don't have to have like the big cooling systems that CubeSats don't have room for anyways. Mm-hmm. So really a groundbreaking mission, really pushing CubeSats. I think this follows in the footsteps of... CubeSats that have been, um, you know, doing all sorts of things, you know, trailing other missions to Mars, doing all of these things. It's just amazing this platform is so flexible. Yeah, it's pretty great. I mean, the access to space was so expensive for so long. And then with these CubeSats and the various, um, you know, like we mentioned in our live stream, which we'll talk about in a little bit, the idea that SpaceX has really increased access to space by doing not just big satellite launches, but they have like a ride-along program where they've got extra room for little satellites like this. And mm-hmm. and you put it all together and, and um, it's cheaper, way cheaper than it used to be to get something out there uh, in space. And it doesn't have to be a huge project. It can be one of these little CubeSats and they still have a lot that they can do, which is just, it's, it's more access to space. That's what it's all about. Yeah, in fact, when I did the state of NASA thing a couple of years ago. One of the pieces of hardware I saw in um, in Huntsville was it's an adapter ring for Orion. It's basically at the, at the end of Orion and all the way around the edges of it were basically trays where they're going to have CubeSats and eject them at different points during the mission. Because like, it's just open to the vacuum of space. Right. Otherwise, it's just structure. It's like, well, why not put these really tailored, specific, low-cost CubeSats into orbit while we're already there. It's good. I like it. More more CubeSats, please. Yes, CubeSats are our friends. All right. I have uh, one more pre-fight checklist item, and then we'll get down to business in the podcast of Commercial Crew. Um, the uh, and I actually do want to talk about Commercial Crew. I want to skip ahead a little bit and talk about what's going to happen next, and then we'll get we'll break down Crew Demo too. But uh, there is something that happens after Crew Demo 2, which is that NASA certifies that SpaceX has fulfilled all of its tests, including Crew Demo 2, and everything in the commercial crew program for SpaceX becomes operational at that point. So um, that's a mission called Crew 1, and it's coming later this year. And there was news on that front in the last couple of weeks. NASA added a fourth member to the crew, the configuration for NASA, uh, the way that the Crew Dragon ultimately ended up being built. It's a four-person spacecraft, even though there are only two who took it on its first ride. Um, And so they added astronaut Shannon Walker to the crew, um, joining previously announced astronauts Michael Hopkins and Victor Glover Jr., and the Japanese astronaut Soichi Noguchi. They're all going to be part of Expedition 63 and 64, uh, rotating in to help crew the ISS later this year. Now, um, Shanna Walker started her space career. It's actually a really amazing story. She was uh, worked for a contractor as a robotics flight controller for the space shuttle and then uh, worked on robotics for NASA directly. And after nine years as a NASA employee, she was selected for the 2004 astronaut class and spent 163 days on the ISS in 2010. So pretty cool. She was at NASA a long time, even before she was a NASA employee, she was there. And she ends up as an astronaut after all of that. Yeah, so this uh, this crew will be 
part of Expedition 63 and 64. Yeah, so they rotate right. in and 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 they, the expedition numbers are all kind of hazy because they you know they they want to demarcate but it's a relay race. There's always somebody at the station so they mark like this is 63 and then and then it, generally like the three people who are up there on the Soyuz right now like they will depart like a new Soyuz will come and they'll depart and then they'll say okay now it's 64. So there's always crossover uh between the different ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they will be up there later this year, perhaps even as early as late summer, um, which is great. I, I should mention so um, so Shannon Walker um, was already on the ISS in 2010. Um, Michael Hopkins, who's on this mission, was on the ISS uh, late 13 to early 14. It's Victor Glover Jr.'s first flight, and um, and Noguchi, the Japanese astronaut, has been to space twice before. He was on the space shuttle in 2005, and then he was on the ISS late 2009 to mid-2010. So pretty veteran, one rookie on board, mm-hmm. those four. And this is a mission that has to follow Demo-2. Demo-2 has to be certified. And what that means is that even though there theoretically could be overlap between the two missions, that's probably not going to happen. They will bring back the crew of Demo-2, and they'll they'll their parachutes will come out, and it'll all be good, and it'll all be fine. And at that point, NASA will say, you're certified, and it will be time to launch Crew-1. And then they will head up there, and then the ISS will be at a full complement of seven, not the uh, five that are up there right now. Something I thought about as you were talking about the how the, the <laughs> this crew is, is veteran, as were the crew of Crew Demo Flight 2, this is something NASA really likes to do, right? When there's a new spacecraft... They look to the crews who flew the previous spacecraft as early members of these flights, right? It happened with Gemini, Apollo, it happened with the shuttle, and and now it's happening now where you have a lot of staff who have been to the space station either via a seat bought from Russia or the shuttle itself, and you see them reflying on this because they want those people with that experience. Yeah. And over time, it will turn over and, you know— at some point, we'll have a class of astronauts that never flew on the shuttle, right? That is not probably actually not even that far out, you know, maybe 10 years or something. So, But this is how NASA operates, and it's worked really well for them in the past, so it's no surprise that they're repeating that sort of approach here. All right, let's take a break. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by ExpressVPN. We all know how a VPN works to protect our privacy and security online. But did you know it could take your TV watching to the next level by unlocking movies and shows that are only available in other countries? That means you can use ExpressVPN to binge on Doctor Who or Star Trek on the UK Netflix app or, you know, it's it's unlocks a world of possibility. And it's really easy. You just fire up the ExpressVPN app, you change your location in it, and then you go refresh Netflix or whatever you want to watch. That's it. ExpressVPN hides your IP address so you can control where you want sites to think you're located. And you can choose from over 100 different countries, meaning there's lots of content libraries out there waiting for you. So if you love anime, you could use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix. And it's not just Netflix. It works with a bunch of streaming services, Hulu, the BBC iPlayer, YouTube, whatever you want. There are a bunch of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is ridiculously fast which is what you want when you're watching shows. No buffering, no lag, and you can stream in HD. I've used a lot of VPNs over the years, but ExpressVPN really is the fastest I've used. And it's compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, 
tablets, laptops, so you can watch what you want wherever you want. So head on over to expressvpn.com slash liftoff, and you can get three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support this show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash liftoff. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, commercial crew. Woo! Got to talk about it. They did it. They did it. It happened. Eventually. They had a scrub due to weather. And we look at weather for launches. Of course, you have to worry about the weather in the vicinity of the launch itself in Florida. But you also have to look at weather downrange. With crew missions, you you have certain abort points along the flight path. And you have to make sure that if you have to come down, that you're coming down into a, a green weather area. So you're not you know, plummeting through the through some sort of really bad storm out over the ocean. So Thursday that didn't come together, uh, but Saturday it did, and and it, I honestly didn't think it would. The weather looked pretty bad going into Saturday, but then really cleared up in the last, you know, half hour hour before the launch, and uh, they were able to get it off on Saturday. Yeah, it's great. We did some uh, live streaming, you and me. We did. Uh, people can go watch those. Uh, we we live stream nothing on Thursday, and then we live stream something on Saturday. And so, if you want to watch us get excited about a space launch, we had like a, there was a little audio glitch at the beginning, and then we smoothed it all out, and it was fine the rest of the way. Um, but that was fun to do a little experiment. We got to watch together, which was also fun. And uh, you know, rocket. And the thing I really walked away from it thinking was we spacex has got us so trained now we like we know what a spacex launch looks like Mm -hmm. and that's that's what it was like literally it was just another falcon 9 launch except that there were people it felt like everything else about it felt so routine in a way at this point because spacex has executed so well with their falcon 9 launches right down to the recovery on the drone ship of the first stage um it all just kind of kept going did feel that way. I had the same thought of like, oh yeah, we've seen this a bunch of times. And, and then they cut to the a view inside the crew, and you got astronauts like pecking away on iPads. I'm like, oh wait, that's uh, <laughs> they're there. Yeah, yeah, they're right ri- there. they're they're riding it out. They said, I think they said that it felt it wasn't quite as smooth as the space shuttle ride, but um, uh, for whatever you know, if you're going to be a connoisseur of different rockets as you launch, which I suppose an astronaut would be, but uh, but perfectly, perfectly nice and a, and a good ride. Any, any ride is a good ride, but, it, you know, it wasn't, it was a, it was a mm-hmm. relatively smooth ride, if not as smooth as the shuttle, maybe. And I think I said Thursday. I definitely meant Wednesday. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was off a day. It's easy to lose track of time. It, it really is. Yes. So this has been a huge deal, like out in the world, away from sort of space nerd life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I got some questions from like family because I'm I'm like the space person as you are I'm sure like if there's ever something in the news you get the <laughs> you get the question uh, and so I kind of want to go through some of these because I think that there's some confusion as to like what this is right like why is SpaceX launching astronauts are they SpaceX astronauts are they NASA astronauts why is like NASA not building spacecraft anymore. Right. And I know a lot of our listeners probably know this, but I think it would be good to kind of go through some of like what this is before we can get into some more of the details of of this mission itself. So Commercial Crew was outlined really back in 2004 in the wake of the Columbia disaster. 
the year before. The second shuttle that was lost, uh, its entire crew was killed on reentry. And that really was the the final straw for the the shuttle program. Now the shuttle still had more to do. There were there were things with Hubble. It had to finish the International Space Station. But the idea even then was we got to get out from underneath the shuttle as quickly as possible. And they set a date for uh, 2010 to be uh, out of the shuttle. So that was back in 2004 under the Bush administration. Uh, the shuttle ended up uh, flying until 2011, so they basically hit that that mark, uh, more or less. And that's when commercial crew was was put into place by the Obama administration. And the idea was actually really pretty simple. I said, we're going to get rid of the shuttle, right? It is dangerous. It is really expensive and time-consuming to fly. And with the International Space Station basically complete... We actually don't necessarily need it. Its capabilities aren't worth the risk. We don't necessarily need what it can do, and it's too risky. And so the shuttle was put out to pasture, and a framework was set up by NASA for companies to come in and design, build, and fly rockets and spacecraft for cargo and eventually crew. You know, Falcon 9, like, where it really earned its wings was International Space Station supply missions, right? right? The CSR program. Yeah, the commercial cargo. And that that's sort of the two phases here is there's commercial cargo and the idea of commercial flights to the space station to bring cargo. And then taking that and then taking the next step and saying, why don't we follow the same program and human rate this and do commercial crew and, and have companies build uh, a, crew, a crew version of their spacecraft and human rate their rockets and do that. And that was the... You know that was the the genesis of the of the commercial crew program to do to have the commercial partners build it so that NASA could focus on building the thing that has had lots of different names that we would probably now put under Artemis as the long range big rocket big uh, capsule kind of thing. Have mm-hmm. NASA focus on that and the SLS right. and all of that, and then let the commercial partners do the low Earth orbit. Uh, International Space Station stuff. And in a way, this isn't crazy different from how things have always been, right? Like, if you think about Apollo, there were a bunch of yeah vendors and companies building all that spacecraft. I was under NASA's direction and project management. Yeah, but, I, I, you know, we talked about Apollo 13. It's like, oh, you got to go talk to the limb guys because their air purifiers don't fit in the, the sockets for hours, right? Right, because they were built at different companies. And that's something I did see some of that on Twitter where people are like, I don't know, having commercial companies build spacecraft instead of NASA seems wrong to me. And I get the... I get why they would think something like that, but the truth is that, yeah, Grumman made the LEM. Like, it, it was a different relationship because they were making it specifically to NASA's, you know, all of NASA's specifications. Um, and this is a little bit different, but in the end, it is still NASA paying companies to make stuff that right. they use to go to space. It's just mm-hmm. a little bit of a, a different way of doing it. And as I've mentioned a few times, most analyses of what it would have cost when they were considering building uh, a program for a new capsule for low Earth orbit to reach the ISS and what NASA would have done in a traditional way to build that would have been many, many, many times, like five or six or seven times as expensive as commercial crew program. And keep in mind, commercial crew program is going to generate two separate space vehicles that are human rated. 
the one from Boeing and the one from SpaceX. So by most accounts, it has been a spectacularly good deal for NASA while in terms of how it, the process happened, while in the end, it still is essentially NASA funding the uh, private companies to build these things, but giving them way more latitude. And NASA, um, although Commercial Crew is funny because it's built on the shoulders of Commercial Cargo, Commercial Crew, apparently NASA was much more involved because it's their astronauts, right? So they were much right. more involved in saying, you know, it, you got to do it this way. Um, I think that's I think that's the reason that uh, Crew Dragon actually got modified to be a four-person vehicle because originally they were talking about it fitting seven, but I believe mm-hmm. that NASA had some very specific... Uh, like uh, contingency plans that they wanted uh, that required some redesign that required it to basically go down to four. And these are NASA astronauts on NASA missions. Now, they're trained jointly when it comes to spacecraft operation. Right, because SpaceX owns the owns the capsule and right. <laughs> uh, they designed it. And so they train the astronauts on the capsule. But that's really no different than if you were a, no. uh, uh, a computer person and they sent you for training at the company who makes the computer system that you're going to be using. It's like it's their system and you're going to be using it, but they're the ones who built it. So you need to train with them. That's what's going on with astronauts astronauts training at SpaceX. Yeah, I mean, when, you know, the <laughs> Apollo astronauts were working and to train on the limb, there were Grumman guys there, right? <laughs> Tweaking things. No, and, and, they so... were going, and they were going out when those things were being built in California. Uh, when the Apollo mm-hmm. segments were being built in California, the astronauts were out there yep. um, testing all that stuff out. So uh, it, it's not as different as it seems in some ways while being very different in other ways, the big story here for me really is that it's uh, human space flight capacity from the U.S. again, because after the space shuttle, that went away. And there was some public perception, I think, that um, it was an abandonment of crewed space flight by uh, NASA. And that wasn't the case, but they weren't ready for the immediate replacement. And then we kind of sat around for nine years waiting for them to get their replacement there. And, and uh, you know, now here it is. So it is a really big deal. But... I thought it was important to kind of go back over some of that stuff because it does look different to the shuttle, right? They're driving up in Teslas and they've got, you know, people with SpaceX logos helping them get strapped in. And the the rocket is one that you've seen on the news a hundred times before. So it is a different context and a different sort of branding of things. But I don't think it's so different from the way NASA has always operated that, you know. It's a, it's a huge deal. And it's not the case that we sold off our space program to private enterprise. No. It's, you know, they're working for NASA and they're buying the rights. It is, it is though, an example of government money flowing into some companies to try to commercialize space, because that's part of the goal, too, is to make it that, um, you know, you want space access to not just be a thing that's funded by a government monolith. You want it to have actual commercial applications. And part of what's going on here is that now SpaceX has a crew-capable vehicle. Not all the SpaceX launches with people in them have to be for NASA, right? Like, the, the most obvious would be a space tourism thing. But there are, or a Tom Cruise thing, but there are other possibilities too. Like, I mean, honestly, they're not going to do this because they've got their own spacecraft. But like, if the Russians were like, why don't we just get a SpaceX? It's like, okay, if you can write them a check, they will launch your cosmonauts in there. If ESA wanted to send up European astronauts to the ISS, uh, ESA could write a check to SpaceX and launch their astronauts up there. And they wouldn't need, I mean, they would need approval because you're going to the ISS and all that. But like, that's the idea here is that. That NASA 
although NASA helped fund this thing, now it exists. And if SpaceX wants to set a price to uh, for seats on a ride in a Crew Dragon, they can do that now because they own a human-rated spacecraft. Yeah, and that was never a, a possibility before, ever. Right. I mean, Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, was renting out seats, and we saw some of those uh, space tourists go to the ISS, right? Yeah. But, but it was not a thing that uh, that NASA did, and it's now a thing that SpaceX and Boeing are going to be capable of with their, with their rockets. Yeah. So it's just, it's a new world. It's different. People have to get used to it. But for me, it, focusing on that is kind of like the crew part of commercial crew is the most important part, right? The commercial is mm-hmm. novel, but the crew part is the most important because it means that there is this capacity to send people from Kennedy Space Center up to the ISS that we lost for nine years. And the ISS has only been going for 20 years. Like we, for half the lifetime of the ISS, We've not been able to send people to the ISS. So that's not good. Not good at all. Yeah. We as Americans, I mean, like obviously the, sure. it, the yeah. ISS wouldn't be able to be operated without the Soyuz capsules continuing to operate. And I, I wonder what would have happened if the U.S. had gotten into that moment where they thought, well, you know, we, we don't have access to the ISS at all unless we keep the shuttle going. I wonder sometimes about if they would have found a way to sort of keep the shuttle going, a shuttle, something like that, because it would be very hard and I know that the people uh, at NASA didn't like feeling, and the people in Congress and in the White House didn't like feeling like uh, you got to be nice with to the Russians because not only are they you're the partners on the ISS, but literally you can't go to space without them right now for nine years. And there are a handful of more seats left uh, in that contract. Right. Over time, that will fade away for American astronauts. And there's some talk that what, what will probably end up happening as there are multiple vehicles capable of going to the ISS, is that there will become uh, there will be a seat exchange that'll start to happen, where rather than having three Russians go up over here and four Americans go up, up over here with some other countries mixed in, that they'll probably come to some agreement that they'll rotate people through. And so a Russian cosmonaut will be sent to America, and they'll go to Hawthorne, and they'll train on the SpaceX capsule, and they'll go up with SpaceX and an American astronaut will get set sent to Russia and they'll train on the Soyuz. And there, there are a lot of American astronauts who've already done a lot of training on the Soyuz and they'll still go up that way. That will that there is a lot of thought that that will probably end up being what happens is that there'll just be a, a, a swap, a seat swap agreement rather than, you know, you ride in your vehicle, we'll ride in ours. But we won't be writing them checks anymore. Instead, it'll be you give us a ride, we'll give you a ride. Like if you're going to a a party in college, you know, you need a ride. All right. So uh, let's talk about the docking a little bit. I missed this live, but you watched it, didn't you? I did. I woke up on, what, Sunday morning and was like, oh, yeah, they're docking at 720 or something. So I I brought up the stream and I'm reminded of uh, this from the last time when they did the the first uh, demo with uh, the, the mannequin that... It's really slow. Like it's it. All the pictures are great, but it's so boring. Um, the pictures are great because like there's the capsule. It's right out there. You can see it. It's the little top hatches open. You can see the space station from the capsule. They like flew around the capsule a little bit. Did a or the space station a little bit. Did a little test flight in manual controls. Um, but then you get into the auto docking, and it's like a spaceship moving very very slowly toward another spaceship, and. Uh, 
they finally do that and they, it gets closer and there's the moment where you see it getting closer and closer and it docks and they do the soft dock and then they do the hard dock and that takes five or ten minutes. And then it's like an hour or two before they open all the hatches and equalize the pressure and get the temperature up. And, you know, I I think it's one of those things where it's best watched in a, like a cut down version of the five or, or ten great minutes of the two hours, because just, you know, for perfect reasons, they're not there for me. They're there to do their jobs. But um, but still, it was it was a, a fun thing to have on. I basically had it on in the background. And so they would say things and things would happen and I would watch those, but it was not like something I was just staring at because you would lose your mind if you did that. But uh, but it was fun to do when they got the hatches open eventually. And um, while the, the astronauts on the, on the Crew Dragon were waiting, um, they were checking off a bunch of checklists. And as far as I can tell, they were using iPads. They were just, you know, standard issue. I was like, what is that? And it's like, I think that's an iPad Pro that he's holding and he's tapping off items Um uh, while waiting for the final kind of like opening where they flew out of the uh, of the Crew Dragon and into the ISS, and uh, I think Bob uh, Bingen bumped his head, <laughs> but it's it's close quarters in there too. But they got out and now they're uh, now they're at the ISS. We we have to talk about Trimmer, the most uh, adorable zero gravity indicator I've seen in some time. Yeah. Who needs a stuffed Earth when you can have this little buddy? Yes, the zero gravity indicator, of course, because every uh, space thing needs uh, jargon Mm -hmm. of some sort. So zero gravity indicator we met on demo one. There was the stuffed uh, Earth, soft, plush Earth, and they had it in in the capsule along with the mannequins so that uh, when they when the mannequin reached zero gravity a little stuffed earth kind of was floating around it's like look it's in zero gravity so the guys bob and doug brought a zero gravity indicator of their own on board and it was a uh, dinosaur a sparkly dinosaur named tremor and he belongs to one of their sons they each have a son as we said last time they're both married to astronauts um, and they, they, uh, these guys have, have sons. They pooled, my understanding is they pooled their favorite stuffed animals and had to choose, essentially they had a draft, Stephen. They had to choose a stuffed animal that they both <laughs> felt good about sending into space, and they picked Tremor the dinosaur. Solid. Covered in sequins. Looks good on camera. Adorable. And there was that moment during, uh, during the flight where they they'd finally kind of gotten into orbit, and, and it was like, oh, look. There's a stuffed animal, <laughs> sparkly stuffed animal. It's a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Zero gravity indicator. ZGI. Very serious. Very scientific. <laughs> How would you know you're in space otherwise? But the stuffed dinosaurs aren't the only kind of trinket that is being talked about because there's a flag up there too, right? There is. We've talked about the capture of the flag game before. So during the last shuttle mission to the space station, a flag was left on board and it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek race for the first commercial crew mission to go fetch it. And uh, SpaceX, you know, this this flight did it. So uh, it was on the same hatch for nine years, and it has now been uh, been retrieved, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's... um. Somebody retweeted Elon Musk, uh, apparently right after uh, the last shuttle mission launched, he tweeted something like, we're on the clock, like Operation Flag Retrieval Go or whatever. 
Um, and then he retweeted that nine years later and he's like, okay, we got it. Um, and so I have a point of pride, right? Like uh, they, they are the ones to get that flag and to, to bring human space flight back to the U S um, and apparently the plan next is that they're going to bring it back at the end of demo two. And then the, it's going to go on the first Artemis mission, which is sending the capsule around the moon. Um, so that's the, the, the symbology of the flag, the little flag continues. I love it. I really do. It's just it's like these little things that remind you of how much humanity is in all of this talk about rocket launches, right? It's, it's, it's a bunch of people doing jobs and, and having a little fun with it too. What comes next? What do we do next? Bob and Doug are going to spend some time on the International Space yeah. Station. They're going to go. It's just like all this. And then it's like, okay, now you got to go to work. Yeah. Very, you know, worldwide attention on your trip to work. And you know, now your commute's over. Yeah. So uh, Doug Hurley has spacewalk uh, time under his belt. Hmm. Uh, so he will probably be taking part in more battery replacement yeah, on the space station. They've been gradually replacing like all the batteries on the ISS yeah. uh, or many bi- batteries on the ISS. And there's more to do there. And um, and so now Doug Hurley is going to get kind of conscripted to do some spacewalks. And, you know, the, you need a, a the remote arm as well when you're doing that. And Bob Behnken, uh is trained on the robot arm because he did that in his previous missions. So that's good. The, those guys are going to be put to work doing these things that they're good at. Um, I thought it was funny that uh, the two Russian cosmonauts who are on board the ISS right now, so that's Ale- it's Anatoly Ivanishin and uh, Ivan Wagner, and they're, uh, or Ivan Wagner, I don't know how you pronounce Russian things, but they uh, they they got some like training before they went up, just at least some, just in case they needed to do an EVA. So Ivanishin got some EVA training in the um, in the EMU, which is the American spacesuit for extravehicular activity. It's the extravehicular mobile or mobility unit. Um, and Wagner got trained in the, using the Canadian uh, robot arm, but. Um, they're not going to have to do that, which is good because, like, most of the Russian cosmonauts are trained on are trained on their spacesuit. They have their own spacesuit called the Orlan, um, and they haven't used the U.S. suit since 2007. So uh, it was a contingency thing, and now they don't have to worry about that because Hurley and Banken are there, and they know how to do that stuff. So um, that you know that's good. They also there's a question of how long they're going to be there. Like, how long is this work trip for them? Because they're a test flight, technically. And nobody knows. Like, they really don't know. And they said in their interviews beforehand, it's a little bit weird going up there not knowing what the plan is for coming back down. It could be, like, six weeks, I think they're talking about, as the minimum that they would be up there. Uh, Crew Dragon has solar panels that um, are supposed to theoretically last up to four months, but it's really unclear how they, you know, they have to watch them and see how they're affected by sitting there at the ISS, sitting in the vacuum of space, having the sun shine on them and then go away and come back. And like, what will their life be? And they got to watch that. That's part of the test. But, you know, they, but that means they could theoretically stay as long as four months um, or come back after six weeks. And at some point, NASA will decide what they want to do, but it hasn't been decided yet. So they just got to, they just got to keep working until uh, they're told to come home. Yeah, so we will uh, we'll keep an eye on that. And when they come home, it'll be a big deal, right? It'll be the completion of this yeah. demo flight, and we'll be hopefully off to the races to a long stretch of missions 
a Borg Crew Dragon. Yeah, I mean, Boeing still has to do their thing, but from SpaceX's yep. perspective, it's the end of the test of commercial crew, and it just becomes operational, and then we start to see, um, you know, astronauts, not just Americans, but other astronauts as well, including in the first mission, the astronaut from Japan, going up from Kennedy Space Center on a SpaceX rocket in the SpaceX capsule. So I think that does it. I think so. Commercial crew, it happened this year. We've been talking, the whole run of this, I mean, we've been doing this podcast for a long time. Mm -hmm. It finally happened, this thing that we've been really talking about since the very beginning. And uh, we got there. We launched this podcast during the period where the U.S. couldn't put people in space itself. And uh, we have, uh, we've come to the end of that. It's good. It's a good feeling. Yeah. We did it, is what you're saying. Yes. You and I did it personally. (laughs) We, whatever we did, which is watch a thing and then talk about it. Like we do. Yep. Like we do. If you want to find links to things we spoke about, head on over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 125. While you're there, you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up. You can become a member to support the show directly. You can also find us over on Twitter. You can find Jason there as Snell. That's Snell with two L's. Mm. Double L. Mm -hmm. Snell double L, as they called him. Yep. Yep. Is that what they called you? Nope. You can find me on Twitter as ISMH. I think our sponsor this week, ExpressVPN. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. <laughs>